Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. As we have now reached verse 6 of Revelation 8, Jesus has opened every seal. He has finalized his claim uh, upon the earth. Uh, But because there are still rebels who reject that claim, uh, the contents of the scroll must be enforced. Remember when Ezekiel saw the scroll, it said it was filled with lamentation, mourning, and woe. And uh, now that lamentation, mourning, and woe must be enacted. And thus seven angels have come forth with seven trumpets to bring more judgment. And, and while the seven sealed judgments were awful, these judgments will be worse as the Lord stretches out his hand upon a Christ-rejecting world. So chapter, six, or chapter 8, verse 6, it says, And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And the first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of the trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. And the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning, as it were, a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for the third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpets of the three angels, which are yet to sound. So here we see in verse 6, the seven angels which had the seven trumpets, they prepared themselves to sound. We uh, have quite a few trumpet players here in our church, and you know what it means when the trumpet player lifts the trumpet to their lips. It means they are about to play. That's what this word prepared means. They have all lifted their trumpets to their lips. Now that shows us that these trumpet judgments, they occur in rapid succession, I bring this up because there is a view out there that the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, they are all the same judgments. They're just explained in different ways with the seal, trumpet, and bowl differences. And and while I would say this is not a matter to, certainly not a matter to part fellowship with someone over, um, there are problems with that view. First of all, every one of the trumpet judgments arise out of the seventh seal. There is no correlation between trumpet one and and seal one. If there's any equality or equation to be made, it's between all seven and the seventh seal. There is none to be. You can't balance them out like that. The context doesn't let you. Secondly, the other problem with this is it places the authority for the chronology of the great tribulation with the person teaching the word of God rather than the word of God. The teacher must guess when events happen rather than let the book of Revelation's natural chronology teach us when things happen. And it is always dangerous when the authority is now in the hands of the teacher rather than the Scripture. Now, this does bring up an interesting point or topic. When do the trumpet judgments occur in the seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation? Well, if we look at Jesus' chronology in Matthew chapter 24, In verse 15, the very next thing that Jesus lists is the abomination of desolation, the idol that the Antichrist puts in the Holy of Holies. 
Now, we know that that event occurs right at the halfway point of those seven years. We know that because the Scripture gives us a, a timer, time stamp on that. So, if we look at all of the trumpet judgments, the mark of the beast, the abomination of desolation, all of these things occur between trumpet six and trumpet seven. So it makes the most sense to understand that the seven seals bring us very close to that three and a half year point in time since these seven trumpet judgments occur in rapid succession, okay? So we begin with the first trumpet in verse seven. And the first angel sounded, he blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth. Now, this immediately calls to mind the seventh plague in Egypt, right? When Moses prayed and the Lord brought hail and fire upon the earth. Now, hail we are familiar with. If you have any of you ever experienced, you know, a hailstorm, you've, you've seen how the little, you know, balls, little snowballs or ice balls, they, you know, begin to fall. And if it's, you know, little tiny things, you just hear, hear the rain sounds a little bit louder. If it's larger, then, you know, it can damage things. These hailstones are quite large. Um, in addition to that, it mentions in the seventh plague on Egypt that it also had fire. Now, that is lightning. Uh, turn to Psalm 78 with me. In Psalm 78 and in Psalm 105, uh, the psalm writers make it clear what the fire is referring to. Psalm 78, verses 47 and 48. Psalm 78 is a psalm that goes through um, the judgments that God brought upon Israel's enemies, and here it's referring to Egypt. And it mentions in verse 47 of Psalm 78, he destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave up their cattle also to the hail and their flocks to hot thunderbolts. That's fiery bolts of lightning is what that means in the Hebrew. Um, Psalm 105, verses 32 and 33. Psalm 105, verses 32 and 33. <clears throat> Referencing the plagues that God brought upon Egypt it mentions in verse 32 and 33 of Psalm 105, he gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He smote their vines also and their fir trees and broke the trees of their coast. That phrase, uh, flaming fire, it, it refers to again, uh, lightning. Now, what's interesting about the lightning that occurred in the plague of Egypt Exodus 9.23 states that that lightning ran along the ground. It means it walked along the ground. In a 2013 paper on forest fires, the National Fire Protection Association stated that from 2007 to 2011, local U.S. fire departments responded to an average of 22,600 fires started by lightning a year. That's a year, 22,600 fires that were started by lightning in a year. Now, while that might seem like a lot, it does to me, the only reason that number isn't higher is because the majority of lightning strikes that occur on the earth that hit the ground, they are strikes that arise from a negative ionic storm source. They do not, they, they are just snap and they don't tend to cause fires. It's the positive ionic storm sources that are dangerous because those lightning strikes have a longer contact duration to the ground. They actually walk on the ground for a little bit, just like Exodus says. 
Now, if you were to have a batch of these positive ionic storms occurring simultaneously all over the planet, fires would break out everywhere. And, and God says that he has reserved this particular type of judgment for the last days. In Job 38, verses 22 through 23, when Job has been questioning the Lord and, you know, wondering where God is, the Lord says, were you there, you know, when, have you entered into the treasures of the snow? Have you seen the treasures of the hail, which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war? Of course, Job wasn't. The idea is uh, God created this for a specific purpose. He used it at other times, but he created it for the time of trouble, the great tribulation. Now, this hail and this lightning, which we did see before in Egypt, comes with something else that was not present in Egypt. It mentions that this hail and lightning, this positively charged lightning that creates these uh, forest fires, it was mingled with blood. Now, If you Google blood rain, you'll find some very, very interesting things. Blood rain is a rare occurrence. Uh, Scientists debate whether it's caused by microorganisms or it's caused by sand particles, either one that attach themselves to rainwater. The most recent occurrence of blood rain was in 2012 in Kerala, India, and Sri Lanka. Uh, The official government report from India initially stated that this blood rain was caused by an exploding meteor. But then they retracted that, uh, that statement when they noticed that the particles resembled spores. So when they did some tests on these spores, it concluded that the blood rain was caused by a form of algae that's common to the region. But they also concluded that it was near impossible for that algae to attach to the clouds and thus create the blood rain. To this day, no one agrees on how it happens. Interestingly enough, though, locals in Kerala stated that the blood rain was preceded by a loud thunderclap and a flash of light followed by groves of trees that shedded shriveled gray burnt leaves. And shriveled leaves were reported around the same time by others in that region. This is significant because that's exactly what this hailstorm and blood rain do. They scorch things and destroy them. They scorch trees and they scorch grass. For it says that the third part of trees were burnt up and all green grass was burnt up. So you're going to have massive forest fires and this scorching effect from this blood rain that's going to shrivel grass and leaves. Now, we have a difficult time in our culture, in our our nation, containing multiple forest fires in one concentrated region. Could you imagine the devastating effects if these things raged all over the planet at the same time? It would be awful. It's not hard at all to see that a third of the trees would be destroyed. You say, but yeah, but all the green grass? Well, green here isn't in the way that we think of green grass as healthy, good grass. The word here, green, it means pale, sickly grass. It's the same word used for the pale horse in Revelation 6, 8. This type of dry grass is caused by extreme heat, which is something we already know is a problem during the Great Tribulation because remember, the Lord, uh, uh, the... the um, the elder tells John that the martyrs will be blessed because they won't experience scorching heat anymore, remember? And so as a result of this scorching heat that's upon the earth, there's going to be grass that's going to be withered and, and pale and dried out. Healthy grass will survive this judgment, but any plant life that had begun to wither beforehand, it will be destroyed. It'll be just wrecked by this storm, these massive storms. 
Now, some critics of the Bible have read this and so the Bible can't be true because a catastrophe like this would wipe out all life on the earth due to the lack of oxygen. But that is not even close to true. If every single oxygen-producing plant suddenly disappeared from the earth, we would have enough oxygen to survive for about 10,000 years. Now, granted, there would be other complications that it would make it difficult for 8 billion people to get past the 500-year mark, like food because animals are dying, but that's hardly an immediate death to all life. That's hardly a reason to question the Bible's validity. Now, despite all that, this is an absolutely horrid judgment. How many people will lose their homes? How many people will lose their lives from the fires? How much crops will be destroyed? And yet, because the second trumpet comes, we know that mankind still doesn't repent. Verse 8, and the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. Here we see that John doesn't know exactly what this is. It mentions here, the second angel sounded, and as it were, which means something like a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, which means that unlike the hail, lightning, and blood rain that John clearly recognized, John doesn't know what it is for sure, so he gives us a description. Now, a mountain that is burning with fire means it's being consumed by fire. So this massive mountain being consumed by fire is thrown into the sea. And this is the part where I wish John was a little bit more specific because it would make my job a lot easier. Where is it thrown from? Is it thrown from the sky? Is it thrown from the earth? We don't know because John doesn't tell us. All we know is where it lands. So that creates a challenge in defining what this is. For example, if, it's, if the blazing mountain originates from the earth, then that sounds kind of like a volcanic eruption, doesn't it? But if it originates from the sky, that sounds like a catastrophic meteor. So which is it? I don't know. I will say this, though. Given the description that John gives us of the third trumpet, where he says a great star falls from the sky, it seems more likely that this originates from something on earth. But again, that's still just a guess. Now, this whether I, I would assume it's probably a volcano, some type of volcanic eruption, it mentions that it's cast into the sea, the, and the result is the third part of the sea became blood. Now, the word sea here is a very generic word in the Greek. Uh, sometimes it refers to just a lake, like the Sea of Galilee. Uh, sometimes it refers to a section of the ocean. Very frequently, the Mediterranean Sea is referred to by this word. Um, given that the third trumpet affects fresh waters, Many people believe this trumpet affects a body of salt water. Uh, because the word is singular here, it's not seas, not all the oceans, um, and because many Bible references to the sea are to the Mediterranean Sea, it is most likely that this refers to that body of water, to the Mediterranean Sea. Could it refer to the entire ocean? Yes, it could. I don't know for sure. Either way, the results are catastrophic. It mentions that the third part of the sea became blood, and as a result of that, the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. Now, the phrase, creatures had life, is important. The, the phrase there, had life, it refers to the vital force that resides in the body of a creature. We usually, uh, we express that because, oh, he's still breathing, you know? He's still alive. He's still breathing. So this phrase here refers to creatures that need oxygen, oxygen users. Now, what's interesting about the sea turning red is that red tide is caused by algae, which depletes oxygen in the water and releases toxins that cause illness in both humans and animals. 
If one-third of the Mediterranean Sea experienced red tide, the marine life death toll would be massive because most sea creatures need oxygen to survive. Now, do I know how a volcano or some other massive burning object would, you know, be the, the instigator of a red tide event? I, no, I don't know how that could happen. I don't even know if this is a red tide event. This could certainly just be a miracle similar to what God did in Egypt when he turned all their fresh water to blood. However it happens, though, again, the destruction to the shipping industry, to marine life, it will be brutal. And yet, we know the world still doesn't repent because there's a third trumpet. Remember, the context of this is Jesus has opened the seals. He has laid claim. He has laid his claim to the earth. And so the reason these are coming in rapid succession is because with each judgment, he's saying, it's mine, acquiesce, submit. And they say, no. And so the judgments keep coming. They keep coming rapidly. Trumpet number three. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the waters and upon the fountains of waters. Here we know for sure that this is some type of, the word there for great star just means a large luminous body. Uh, The word is most commonly used for actual stars. Sometimes it's used in the scripture for angels. But in Jude 13, it is very clearly used for meteors. I learned something very interesting. So when a, a space rock, or whatever you want to call it, is out in outer space still, it's a meteor. When it enters our atmosphere, it becomes a meteorite. Or I'm sorry, a meteor, no, I'm sorry. When it's out in space, it's a meteoroid. When it enters our atmosphere, it becomes a meteor. And when it strikes the earth, it becomes a meteorite. See, the Bible's fun. You learn all sorts of things. So this is, is very clearly a meteor, a, a, a meteoroid that has entered the earth's atmosphere. Uh, that is likely the meaning here. Um, and so it mentions it as a great one. It's very large, uh, coming from heaven, or literally from out of the sky. So it's coming from out of the sky toward the earth. Um, and it mentions here that burning as it were a lamp. The phrase burning means that it's on fire as it's falling, and it's on fire like a torch would be. So it's not like just a fire, like a, like a campfire where everything's on fire. It's got, you know, the top of it's on fire and the bottom's not. So as it's, you know, well, I'll just tell you, when material falls into our Earth's atmosphere, it's traveling tens of thousands of miles per hour, and when it collides at that speed with the gases in our atmosphere, the material ignites. So you've got this massive rock of some sort coming into our atmosphere and it's, you know, got flames on the, on the front of it as it's coming in, okay? Now, most meteors are so small that you can't see them. They, they burn up before impacting Earth's surface. But this one, it tells us, is very large, which will create big problems. It mentions here that it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters, in 2013, a house-sized meteoroid entered the atmosphere near Chulyabinsk, Russia, and it blew apart. It exploded 14 miles above the ground. 14 miles above the ground. But that explosion released the energy equivalent of 440,000 tons of TNT and generated a shock wave that blew out windows and damaged buildings for over 200 square miles. More than 1,600 people were injured in the blast. That's for one that's only the size of a house. One of the most famous meteorite impacts in history is the 180-mile-wide Chicxulub crater on the Yucatan Peninsula, believed to have killed off 75% of marine and land animals on the earth at that time. 
we don't know how large this thing is, but it doesn't appear to actually impact the earth because it mentions it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. It appears to break apart. It appears the object doesn't make that kind of impact because it's spread out over these one-third of these fresh waters on the earth. So what happens is it's more likely that this object explodes before impact, scattering pieces all over the region, all over that region of the planet. And while it doesn't mention any of the damage this object does when it explodes or if it does impact, it does do harm to one-third of the fresh, Earth's fresh water supply. Look at verse 11. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many died of the waters because they were made bitter. Wormwood is a bitter-tasting herb, and it's used sometimes in the Bible to describe a a bitter situation or a bitter taste. Um, And that's what happens here. The the name of the star is called Wormwood. I I do think it's fascinating that we name meteors. I mean, some of them are like, you know, RT123 or something like that. But we do actually give them like names like this sometimes. For example, we named one one near-Earth asteroid uh, that is the size of the Eiffel Tower, we called it Apophis. Apophis is an Egyptian deity who looked like a serpent and embodied chaos. So when you consider that we name movies Armageddon after asteroids that are coming at the earth, would it really surprise you that much if we named an asteroid Wormwood? Not at all. The reason it's named after a bitter herb is because of how it affects the fresh water supply. Now, An interesting study came out in June of 2019. The report was discussing plans that mining companies have to extract water from asteroids for use in both sustaining manned long-distance space missions and bringing water back to the earth. I've always considered a pail and a scoop sufficient. I don't know why we need to go to outer space to get water, but I can understand if you want self-sustaining long you know, distant space, manned space missions, you would need to be able to find water out in outer space. And so in 2016, the OSIRIS-REx was launched from Cape Canaveral for the purpose of collecting samples from an asteroid named Bennu for this express purpose, to pull out those samples, and that way they could see how much water they can get out of it. Uh, it's interesting, their goal is, is they actually want to put this big, huge plastic container around asteroids, and then they withdraw the water from it, and then they will enclose the water, separating it from the asteroid, and then send the big plastic bag back to the Earth. I don't know how they're going to do that, but whatever, that's, that's the idea. Or if you're out on a long, long-term manned space mission, you can bring the water into your, your spacecraft as well. While OSIRIS-REx was able to successfully connect with the asteroid and capture those samples late last year, it will not return to Earth until 2023 for the results. In the meantime, other meteorite examinations have turned up something interesting. The title of that 2019 report was, Don't Drink the Water. The reason is, they might have been better before they spent millions of dollars launching this thing to outer space. When water was extracted from meteorites that have fallen to the earth, the study identified the following contaminants. Sulfur, arsenic, tellurium, cadmium, antimony, and mercury. And the amount of sulfur and mercury far exceeded the EPA's limits for contaminants in drinking water. Don't drink the water indeed. While handling a meteorite is perfectly safe once it cools, 
This one is going to infect a third of the fresh water supply on the earth with deadly results. Now again, the fourth trumpet's going to occur. We know it means that mankind does not repent. And so verse 12, and the fourth trumpet sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, the third part of the moon, the third part of the stars. And so as the third part of them was darkened, that the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. Now, this is not just shortening daylight for four, by four hours. This is turning the lights off for four hours during the daytime and four hours during the nighttime. This is a supernatural darkness very similar to the ninth plague upon Egypt. In Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23, when we see the details of that plague, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. And God explains, Even darkness which may be felt. And so Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They, could not, they did not see one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. That's how dark it was, a darkness that could be felt. Jesus predicted this kind of judgment, this darkness, during the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24, verse 29. I might be thinking, well, Pastor Will, compared to volcanoes and meteors and blood rain and hailstorms and lightning everywhere, crazy lightning, what could a little darkness, extra little darkness, be? Well, light isn't just a physical property. Light is also an aspect of God's character. And this is a thing that you, we have to come to terms with. You know, for example, people will, will talk about things in the Bible and like, well, I just don't get this. And, and if you don't come to terms with the fact in the beginning God, you're going to have problems at some point. Because the Bible teaches us actually that God said, let there be light before he created the sun, moon, and stars. So when we try to understand our universe in terms of light, if the only thing you're going to bring into your calculations is the sun, moon, and stars, you're going to come up with the wrong answer because that's not where it began. It doesn't mean that they aren't for light, but that's not where it began. God is light, the Bible tells us. It's an aspect of his character. That means light is not just a physical property. So when we talk about God turning off the lights, it's not just physical light that's gone. What if God withdrew his presence so significantly that its absence could be felt? You see, Matthew 5.45 tells us this, that God is good to the righteous and to the unrighteous. He is. So could you imagine what would happen if he removed his presence entirely for a third of each day? Four hours during the day and four hours during the night? Could you imagine how dark the world be, would be without his light and without his love? You know, one of the main pieces of advice given to women who deal with postpartum depression is go out into the sunlight and go for a walk. We are not meant to dwell in darkness. We're meant to be in the light. You know, uh, one of the things that my doctor said to me as I was getting older, one of the first things he said is, you need to take vitamin D, Will. He said, we, we were not designed to be sitting in an office all day, you know, working. We were designed to be outside, and we don't get vitamin D from other things. We get it from the sunlight. 
and we had to board up our windows for Hurricane Charlie in 2004 at our house. Little did we know that those windows would need to stay boarded because three more hurricanes would hit in the next six weeks. Francis, Ivan, and Jean. Anybody here lived that? (laughs) We had no power at our house for almost two months. It was emotionally brutal being inside because of how dark it always was. We would go outside just to get some light, even during the daytime. Can you imagine the effect both the physical and spiritual darkness will have on people? especially after everything else that's already happened. And yet, when we look at verse 13, and God brings a warning, we see that mankind still doesn't repent. Now, as these judgments are coming in rapid succession, the Lord has laid claim to this earth. He said, it is mine. I'm the one who is worthy to open the scroll. He looses all the seals. It is his. But they still resist what would you and I do at that point in time? I was reading this morning in Exodus, my, just my devotions, and came to the portion of Scripture with the golden calf. And after everything happens, Aaron has his failure, the people have their failure. And the Lord tells Moses, he says, Moses, get out of the way. For the people have corrupted themselves. I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start over with you. Moses does what Jesus did for us. He stood in the gap and he says, Lord, don't destroy your people who are called by your name. Be merciful to them. And as I was thinking about what Jesus did for me and seeing Moses' incredible example, I've I've thought to myself over, you know, the last few years, I've thought to myself, you know, as our culture continues to grow more and more wicked, you know, what would I do if I saw evil happening right in front of me? Would I lay down my life, put myself in front, you know, for what's right? You know, would I lay down my life for someone else, even when they're doing wickedly, just like Jesus did for me? It's a heavy thought. I sense the Lord said to me, Will, there are many of my people who I think, if I were to say, get out of the way, I'm gonna wipe everybody out, that they would say, go get them. We have not learned that from Christ. When we see these things, there is a part of us that understands that justice is coming and we will say with the Lord, just and true are your ways, O Lord. For you have, you're just to judge them. You've given them all these opportunities to repent and they don't do it. We will say that. But even as John describes that it was in his mouth like honey, but it was bitter in his stomach. It's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. Because while it's necessary for Jesus to deal with these rebels, they will experience an eternity without him if they don't repent. When we read about this, these four judgments, they're horrible, and worse is coming. But one of the things I think it's easy to miss is the mercy of God. Because God doesn't bring total darkness like he did to Egypt. He doesn't destroy all the fresh water or all the marine life or all the forests. People are still being stubborn, but God hasn't wiped them out yet. He's still working in their lives. His hand is stretched out still. Isaiah uses that phrase to describe the work of God in judgment. 
And Isaiah chapter 5, verse 25, you can go back and read it again later, but it mentions that his wrath will not end, that he will continue to bring this judgment. Whoa, 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 he says, right? And he lists why these woes are coming upon his people. And he says, my wrath will not be held back. It will continue to come upon my people. And yet, he says, my hand is still stretched out. I haven't given up on them. It's still stretched out, even in judgment. God will continue to bring judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world because they still refuse to repent, but he's still reaching out. Do you know the worst thing that a person can experience isn't God's discipline or even his judgment? It's when God removes his hand because he's done. That his spirit's not striving with you anymore. It's when the door to the ark closes. You know, it's interesting. If you read the text, who closes the door? The Lord does. Because judgment's his work, not ours. He closes the door to the ark and he shuts them in, the Bible says. In essence, also shutting everyone else out. Because they had a hundred years while he was making that ark to repent. The Bible calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. For a hundred years, he was calling them to repentance. And eventually, their time ran out. The same thing will happen in the book of Revelation. There will be an angel, I believe it was an angel who, I think it says he puts one foot on the earth and one foot on the, the sun or something like that, I don't remember. But the eye is a big angel. And he claps his hands and he says, King James says, there shall be time no more. What it means is time is up. You've run out of time. My spirit is done striving with you. And now the only thing left to me is judgment. And so the fact that God is still doing these things shows that he's not given up yet. Even his, in wrath, his hand is stretched out still. And because mankind is remaining rebellious, in verse 13, God warns them that he's going to raise the temperature even more. Verse 13 says, And I beheld, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. This isn't over. Now, some translations in verse 13 says, I beheld and I heard an eagle. And that actually does seem to be the better translation here. Uh, although I will say either way it is an angel because at least I've never run into an eagle that talks. Not like this. We've already seen angels that look like eagles before through the Scripture, so it shouldn't surprise us that we see one here that looks like an eagle. And it mentions that he is flying through the midst of heaven. The word there, flying, means he is continually flying. This is not like a short three-minute announcement before church starts. This is an eagle flying all throughout continually. It says the midst of heaven, the point or the region in the sky directly above the earth. Everyone will be able to look up and see this angel and hear his warning. And his warning is, woe, woe, woe. The word there means horror, horror, and more horror. Disasters and more disasters and more disasters to the inhabitants of the earth. This phrase, the inhabitants of the earth, we've already mentioned it before in the book of Revelation. It means the earth dwellers, those who have rejected the Lord and refused to submit to his rule. You know, it's interesting. A lot of times people think that Christians are against things that the world wants. You know, I, I have even challenged believers that we need to be careful in how we explain things. 
For example, many people believe that Christians aren't for world peace. That's the farthest thing from the truth. I want world peace. Some people say, well, Christians are against equality. I want equality. People say Christians are against justice or fairness. I want justice and fairness. So what is the difference between us and the world then? Where is our disagreement? Well, the world says, we want these things, but we want them without you, Jesus. We don't need you for these things. We have a good plan for these things, and we can bring them about. But what Christianity says is there's no way we can have these things without Jesus. We need our Savior. He's the only one who can bring them for us. That's the difference, and it's a big one. It's a big one. So when it talks about the inhabitants of the earth, the earth dwellers, it are those who are saying, no, no, we don't want you to be our king. We know you've laid claim to this place. You've opened heaven and showed us why we're being judged, but we don't want you. Go away. Go find another planet and take everybody else with you. We're fine. We don't need you. We can set everything up here, and if you just leave us alone, we'll be happy. We can achieve everything we've set out to do. And the reality is, is that's how we're going to bring ourselves to the brink of destruction. And I'm thankful that the Lord does not go find another planet. He doesn't leave us alone. I'm thankful that his hand is still stretched out and that he doesn't abandon us. I'm thankful that Jesus will come back and he will set up a kingdom where righteousness covers the earth like water covers the sea. And there'll be no more war. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more sickness, no more division, no more violence. Now, these three exclamations of disaster, whoa, 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 they coincide because there's three more trumpets that are coming. And basically the angel is saying, if you thought these four trumpets were bad, the next three, you won't even be able to compare them. Now, people are always excited. Let's study the book of Revelation. Like, yeah, you forget about these chapters. But here's the reality as we close out chapter 8. God's hand is not extended in wrath today. It's extended in grace. It's extended in mercy. That's how I'd ask you this morning, you know, are you fighting him? Or are you humbling yourself before him, submitting to his ways that you might receive that awesome grace? Are you humbling yourself? Are you yielded to him? Saying, Lord, you're the only way that, you're my king. You're the only way, you know, that, you, that I can have any type of, of meaningful life. You know, in Paul's letters to Timothy is, he was encouraging this young man. He talks about grace a lot. He starts with his own example in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through, or 12 through 15. He says this. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 15, he says, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul doesn't list here and say, you know, I, I, just, I had a plan, I figured it out, you know, and I did a lot of good. No. He says, Jesus enabled me. He counted me faithful. I didn't deserve to be here. He explains why. Who was before that a blasphemer and a persecutor, and the word here injurious he uses, it means insolent. It's demanded, insisted in my own way. 
My way was best. But what turned that around? He said, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And what turned it around, he says, was the grace of God. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Everyone should believe this. Everyone should stand with this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We are not okay on our own. <laughs> we are not headed for a utopia. We are not gonna fix this mess without the Lord. Paul says, of whom I am chief. And Paul shares that with Timothy because Timothy of God can save me, rescue me, and turn me around and use me to impact lives. He can do the same for you. He can do the same for you this morning. And so Paul's word to Timothy as he was about to die was in 2 Timothy 2.1. He says, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same, those same things you have heard, commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Pass the torch on. We are in a period of God's grace and mercy right now. His wrath is not upon us. We have great opportunity to share our faith, to share the grace that we have experienced, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am one of. I can't say I'm chief because under inspiration, Paul said that. So you think you're too bad that Jesus can't save you? Tough. It's under inspiration. Paul was the worst. You, can't, you don't get that title. So even if you're second worst, he can rescue you. And our job is to be strong in that grace and to pass it on to others. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, help us to pass on. Lord, help us first to receive that grace. Right now, we choose to receive the grace that you've given to us. Lord, to receive that love and that mercy that you've extended to us. To recognize, Lord, that in an acceptable time, you have called to us. And Lord, as we answered, you have helped us. Thank you for your grace, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we commit to you this morning that we want to be those who pass that on to others, who teach others about your grace so they can pass it on to others. Lord, would you baptize us anew and afresh in your spirit and give us boldness to share about your amazing grace? Lord, we commit ourselves to that, to occupy till you come, knowing that a horrible day is coming and we don't want anyone in our circle of influence to have to go through it, should you not tarry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.